Well, good morning. It is good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 4, we're going to be at the end of chapter 4, moving into chapter 5 this morning, beginning in verse 32, Acts chapter 4. Luke writes, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there is not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring their proceeds of the cells and lay them at the apostles' feet. And they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all those who heard it. We pray with me. Father God, we come before you this morning uh, in a very perplexing passage. And Father, I pray that as we open your word this morning, Lord, I pray that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would guide us, that your spirit would instruct us. And Father, I pray this morning that you would, as we open your word, you would allow us to see you as you truly are. Not as we would want you to be, not as we would desire and hope you to be, but we'd see you as you are. And I pray that as we get a fuller glimpse and a a more accurate glimpse as to your nature and as to your character, Lord, I pray that you would transform us and that you'd change us. I pray that you'd do business with us this morning, that you'd meet us in the midst of the particulars of our lives and that you'd speak to us wherever we are this morning, Ma, we hear your voice. Father, I pray that my words would be yours and that you'd use this time to accomplish your purposes and to establish your glory, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, uh, a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity. I had a parent who confessed to me uh, that they, over and slowly but surely over time, were hating who they were becoming as they had to discipline their children. And ultimately, what they found was a pattern developing in themselves in which they would do this. They would begin to very carefully identify what their children held most dear, and then they would begin to threaten unimaginable consequences on those objects, all right? To gain leverage and to gain a foothold in order to actually get their children to do what they wanted. So it would often go something like this. Imagine a little parent who would say, hey, little Timmy, here's what I want you to do. I want you to clean up your room tonight. And if you don't, I would hate that if your little red truck that is your favorite fire truck that you take with you everywhere, if it would go missing for two weeks, Or or worse yet, if it would get into a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler and be no longer identifiable to you, maybe you should clean up your room, right? Or or imagine little Julie, hey, would you maybe eat all of your food tonight? And if you don't, it would be just awful if little Elma would take a horrible spill down the stairs, right? And her little precious neck and head that's so fragile, if if over a two-story house, if something could happen to little Elma, how how horrific would that be, right? Maybe you should eat all your food tonight, right? (laughs) And obviously, parenting like that is, if anything, demented, right? (laughs) Or at the very least, it's disproportionate to really the crime that was committed, right? Uh, Parents that would discipline like that really are enacting a punishment and enacting a set of consequences upon a tragedy, upon a sin that is disproportionate to what was done, right? 
In fact, I think all of us have been in that kind of spot before where maybe it was our own parents, right? Where they enacted and put forward a punishment on you or a set of consequences on you that you thought were not fitting or suited to the actual crime that you committed. Maybe for you, it's even been a professor this semester already who you failed to turn in a paper, uh, you failed to follow through on a project or on a deadline, and all of a sudden you faced a set of consequences that you thought surely were not fitting for what you did. And with parents and with professors, it's one thing, but what happens when it's God? What happens when it seems that God enacts a punishment or a set of consequences upon a sin that sure as heck don't seem fitting to the crime? In fact, as we're going to be in Acts chapter 5 this morning, this passage for me has always baffled me. We're going to see a guy who is going to, in graciousness, sell a piece of his own property, but then he's going to have a little white lie that he's not going to give all of the money that he sold from the property. A property that he was selling for graciousness, for charity, to help those that were in need, but he's going to have a little white lie. He's going to hold back some and not give all that he sold it for. And what God will do is he'll come and he'll take the man's life on the spot. The guy drops dead on the spot. In fact, we'll see in a few verses later, his wife will drop dead on the spot just a few hours later for what seems like, at least to us, a little white lie. So what happens when it's God? What happens when God seems to enact a punishment that does not fit the crime, right? I think a lot of churches, frankly, would move over Acts chapter 5 because it's difficult intellectually, it's difficult emotionally, and there would be even some commentators that would say Acts chapter 5 doesn't belong in our Bible. Somehow it snuck its way in and it really wasn't of apostolic witness. It wasn't really written by the apostles. That something else is going on. Acts 5 has always baffled me. It's one of the most perplexing passages I think we'll come across in the book of Acts this this semester. And yet I'll tell you guys, I think the story here has a fresh voice, a fresh message for us. One that we so desperately need to hear. Because I think our reaction to the story in Acts 5 says far more about us than it does about the nature and the character of God. (laughs) That is the very nature of our objections to a story like this that say and reflect much on who we think we are and who we think God is. Acts 5 is a tough passage to stomach. It's a tough passage to wrestle with. And yet, I think the Lord has something fresh in it for us that's going to really reshape how we see God, reshape even how he handles and how he deals with us, and hopefully reshape even how we see ourselves and how we respond to him as we walk with him. And so, Acts 5, really, we're going to begin really the very end of Acts chapter 4, because really, uh, the end of chapter 4 kind of sets for us the context to the story. Um, really, if you've been with us so far through the book of Acts, really, as we've looked at the early church in, the, in Jerusalem in the first century AD, this church has seemed perfect. Some would even wonder, especially as you read Acts chapter 4, is this church perfect, right? <laughs> the first few chapters of Acts, we've seen the Holy Spirit descend on this gathering of believers. We've seen the Spirit descend like fire on their heads, and we've seen them speak in foreign languages, we've seen the apostles heal a lame beggar, and we've seen thousands upon thousands coming to know Jesus and gathering quickly in this little fledgling movement that's beginning to take off and that's beginning to rock Jerusalem. And it seems, as you look through the first four chapters, it seems like they're incredibly perfect, right? They've encountered all kinds of opposition externally, and yet they've weathered it incredibly well. And really, they're facing a kind of popularity because thousands upon thousands are coming to know Jesus. Thousands upon thousands at a time are gathering within this and joining this community. Things are going incredibly well. In fact, it's not just that they're popular, but Luke will tell us they're also experiencing a great kind of unity. Look at verse 32. Luke tells us, "...in the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul." Luke will say that really that they've gathered themselves around a common confession, that there is no division. They have a unity of purpose, a unity of confession, and a unity of vision. 
They know what God has called them to, and they've gathered really around the apostles' teaching, and they are devoted to that, and they are unified. Men from different places, men and women from different backgrounds, and yet they have a common confession in Jesus, and it's really unified them. It's not just that they have great unity that Luke will show us, especially here in Acts 4, that they have great charity. Notice what he says at the end of verse 32. He says, And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. There's a kind of charity that's existing in this early church that is just baffling. Notice he continues on in verse 34, and he says, For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the cells and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. The kind of charity that's existing in the first century church is absolutely astonishing. I don't think we see something like this until we get to college, and we see nothing like this even after college. This kind of sharing, this kind of mutual possession, really, I I think college really is the only time you've seen anything parallel to this, all right? I've noticed for girls that live with one another, they each have their own closets, and yet what I've noticed is that the boundaries that are their personal closets really do not restrict other roommates from taking their clothes, right? So uh, for some of you girls, you haven't worn anything that is your own in the last week, right? You've just been pilfering from your roommates, right? Uh, For guys, it's not clothes. What is it? food, right? Uh, some of you guys, literally, you haven't been in the grocery store since you first got here to town, all right? And I don't know how you are thriving and existing, but you are just mooching off everything that your roommates buy at the grocery store. Knock it off this afternoon, go to H-E-B, all right? Um, honestly, I, I think our, our house growing, uh, going through college is a bit different than everyone else's because, and maybe this again goes to my only child selfish side, all right? But in our house, everyone had their own shelf in the fridge, all right? And you didn't cross one another's shelves. And so there was four milk in our fridge, all right? There's also four cartons of Bluebell in our freezer, all right? But everyone had their own, all right? And yet I think we were a bit of the exception because I think through college, there's this like mass socialism that exists in which you just share one another's stuff, right? Because you're all poor, so what's there to protect, right? That's kind of that's what happens in college, right? Is that right? Uh, and, and I think really, it's the only parallel I can think of really for what the early church is doing because there is a kind of mass sharing that's occurring that really you've not seen until you got to college and you will not see even after you leave college, right? Because everything kind of goes back to normal once you leave this place, all right? And ultimately, I think many have even asked as they look at the first century church's example in Acts 4, Acts 2, many of even asked, hey, were they practicing a kind of socialism? Honestly, was this a kind of communism that was being shown? And maybe is this should be our model. Is this what we should be as a church? Is this how we should live lives out financially? And I'd say, no, I don't think they're practicing socialism, right? This isn't biblical communism. This isn't what's happening in Acts 2 and Acts 4. I think clearly, and the reason why I'd say that is, I think what they're doing here was not compulsory, all right? The kind of sharing that they're seeing and being exhibited in Acts 2 and Acts 4 was not required. It was being done and chosen by grace and not by law. The church leadership was not enforcing it. Governmental authorities were not enforcing it. This was complete volitional choice and volunteerism, all right? They were doing this out of the kindness of their heart because they loved one another. In fact, the kind of sharing that they're doing, though, did not blow away all categories of personal possession. If you'll notice uh, in verse 36, now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles. In verse 37, and he owned a tract of land that he sold. Uh, Joseph will sell a tract of land. Ananias in chapter 5, verse 1, will sell a piece of property, all right? The implication and the possibility is that those individuals had other pieces of property, other lands that they had not yet chosen to sell. So they're selling a bit of their surplus. And so one of the things you see early on in these, in these discussions is uh, that the early church had not blown away all categories of personal possession, all right? 
It's not that personal property no longer existed, all right? I think what you see in these examples is that there are those that had particular possessions, particular wealth, and that by grace, not by law, they're choosing to sell, they're choosing to provide for the needs of the community. I, I will say that while I don't think they're practicing socialism, I also don't think they're practicing capitalism as we see it, feel it, and breathe it, all right? Ultimately, for, for these individuals in the early church, this kind of community, individual want did not triumph or trump community need, all right? I think, in, in, in by and large, capitalism has many benefits to it, but by and large, really, we're driven by how much can you get? How much can you amass? And really, there's not enough motivation, even within capitalism, truly, to, really, to motivate people, the private sector, even to care for the poor and to care for the marginalized, right? I don't think there is a perfect economy that's out there, right? And I think what the early church is doing is, is not even necessarily capitalism, right? It was not compulsory. They didn't have to do this, but it was customary. There is a norm and there was a pattern developed in the early church that really stood out from the culture at the time and it still stands out from our culture today. You and I as Western Americans are so individualized and we take that even to our sense of our possessions and what you see from the first century church is that they were sharing broadly, they were sharing liberally, they were sharing with any who had need. Really what you see happening here for the first century church I think is astonishing. I don't think they were practicing socialism or capitalism. I think they were practicing gracism. Look at verse 33. Luke tells us that, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. The grace of God was so abundant and so present for the early church that it was mainly being manifested not just by the apostles' witness of the resurrection, but even by how they were treating one another in their experience of community. This kind of charity was being driven by the grace of God. The fact that God had given them something they did not deserve, and so they were not holding on to their own possessions. They were living out and practicing grace. It can be no coincidence that in chapter 5, verse 1, that Ananias, who will be introduced to us, his name actually means Yahweh is gracious. All right? Uh, even this character that we're going to see who's going to run into trouble in chapter 5, his very name means Yahweh is gracious, which makes it ironic with how he's going to act and what God is going to have to do. And yet, really, what you see over and over as the early church begins is that there is incredible grace, incredible charity, incredible unity, and even at some level, a great popularity that God was gathering men and women at the thousands upon thousands. And yet, trouble will come. It's fascinating as you look through the first few chapters of the book of Acts, the early church had experienced incredible external opposition. Incredible external persecution. And yet, what's going to happen here in Acts 5 is going to be a threat of a different kind. Not external anymore, but internal. The threat's going to come from the inside, and by that very nature, it's going to be far more serious and far more grave. And really, as we get into chapter 5, we're going to begin to realize that something has gone wrong. And the question is, what went wrong? Exactly what was it that went wrong? And so notice with me, if you will, chapter 5, verse 1. We get the example of Joseph, who was incredibly gracious, and then we're going to get a contrasting example of a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira in in chapter 5, verse 1. And notice how Luke records his story. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What was Ananias' issue? What was his problem? What went so wrong in the early church here as we get into chapter 5? Ananias is going to clearly lie. And I think on the surface to you and I, it seemed like a clean, simple white lie, right? 
His motive at some level seems honest. It seems great. He's wanting to provide for those that were in the community, right? Which is why he's selling the property. And then maybe at the last minute he decides, man, I, and this is jeopardizing my, my standing. Maybe I need to hold a little bit back. And so he doesn't give all of it. And then God's going to come and act swiftly and strongly on the basis of his lie. But what's fascinating is what was his motivation to lie? Why did this guy lie even on a little bit? Was it greed? Was he just wanting to keep money back? Was that the deal? I don't think it was because if he was motivated by greed, he never would have done this to begin with, right? He never would have actually moved forward to even sell anything whatsoever. So I think his issue and his problem was not greed. I think it was something far deeper and far more problematic for the early church. It was a sin of a lie of hypocrisy. I think what this guy was trying to do and what he was wanting to accomplish was not providing for the needs of the community, but what he wanted to do was purchase a reputation. He wanted to appear to be something that he was not. And so he sells his property so that he can be presented to the community at large as something that was truly not right. He presents himself in a way that doesn't really fit with reality. He is, in a sense, in this lie, motivated by hypocrisy. He cares more about what people think of him than he cares really of what God sees of him and thinks of him. His primary concern is the approval of man and not the approval of God, which is why he presents himself falsely. It's fascinating. Ralph Waldo Emerson says this about hypocrisy. He says, every man alone is sincere. When it's just you by yourself, you'll wear what you want to wear. You'll eat what you want to eat. You'll go where you want to go. But the moment you enter into community, everything changes. And so he says at the entrance of a second person, hypocrisy begins. We parry and we fend the approach of our fellow man by compliments, by gossip, by amusements, by affairs. We cover up our thought from him under a hundred folds, right? And when you're just by yourself, the threat of hypocrisy, the willingness, the desire to be something you're not really doesn't exist at all. But the moment that you step into a community or a community invites you in, all of a sudden there's this peer pressure. There's this sense of social standing that presents itself that threatens you to be what you're not. It's not what high school was all about, right? Trying to fit in, trying, trying to wear a mask, trying to be popular, trying to be in, trying to be whatever everyone else thought was cool. And hopefully college is a little bit different and some of that pressure is, is reduced, but it still is there, right? There's a pressure that exists for all of us to be something at times and to look apart, to play a part, to walk a walk that maybe isn't true of us at all. It's true for some of us as we step here on a Sunday morning. It's also true for some of you guys as you step into parties or into different crowds, into different circles on a Friday night, or even into a classroom setting on a Monday morning. The desire to present yourself and to be something sometimes that you're not. I was blown away this week. Uh, some of you guys may have caught it, but as the iPhone 5 came out, uh, Jimmy Kimmel did a bit uh, a little while ago that went viral on YouTube in which he sent out a guy uh, on the, to the streets to interview individuals as they got a sneak peek at the iPhone 5, all right? So uh, they had kind of set this thing up as if uh, they had gotten an iPhone 5 before it was released and they want to get people's first reactions with it. And what people didn't realize was that it was just another iPhone 4, all right? So uh, as they're presented with what they think is an iPhone 5, they're literally holding their iPhone 4 they're holding what they think is an iPhone 5 and they're like, man, this is so much lighter. This is awesome. It's so much bigger. And they're like, they're operating on each of them. They're like, and it operates so much faster. This is just astonishing, right? But it was an iPhone 4, right? It was being presented as something that it wasn't, right? It was a false presentation. It was one as a presentation of hypocrisy, right? It was being presented as something that it was not. And on Jimmy Kimmel and on the streets of that interview, it was absolutely hilarious, But when it comes to relationships and it comes to our own lives, the presentation of ourselves as we are not is not funny at all. In fact, it's been said in terms of the danger of hypocrisy, it's been said that the hypocrite's crime is that he bears false witness against himself. 
What makes it so plausible to assume that hypocrisy is the vice of vices is that integrity can indeed exist under the cover of all other vices except this one. Only crime and the criminal, it is true, confront us with a perplexity of radical evil, but only the hypocrite is really rotten to the core. Fascinating quote. What is she saying? I think what she's saying is this, that sure, the adulterer, the liar, the murderer are capable of incredible radical evil. And on the surface, it seems like the hypocrite's evil is not that bad. It's just a false presentation. It's just a con job. Why is that that bad? And what I love about this is, is she'll speak of it is that for the adulterer and the murderer and the liar, they know what they are, right? But for the hypocrite, They've been wearing a mask so long they've become convinced that that is what they are. And all of a sudden they don't realize really what they need. It's interesting as you look through the gospels, Jesus himself for the liar, the murderer, the, murderer, the adulterer, uh, the tax collector will extend incredible grace, incredible love, incredible compassion. Because they know that they were in need of a savior. They were not confused of who they were. But for those that were self-righteous, for those that were hypocritical, he brings the greatest scathing rebukes that he can find and that you can find in the gospels. That for the self-righteous, for the hypocrite, he comes stronger and he comes harsher than he comes at anyone else. Because they've been wearing a mask for so long, they've become convinced of that mask. And for those that are self-righteous, they don't realize how greatly in need of a savior they are. And yet the liar, the murderer, completely knows that the very need that they have. So I, Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 6, Whenever you fast, you not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. And truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. I like this one version in Matthew 6 because you get the great repetition of face or appearance that for the hypocrite, they are so incredibly concerned with how they look and the walk that they're walking and how people perceive them. Perception is everything to the hypocrite. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you that person? (laughs) To what extent do you look at your own life and go, hey, I am living life in such a way that I'm constantly trying to be something that I'm not? I'm constantly trying to wear a mask. I'm trying to look apart. And depending on the stage that I'm on, depending on the audience that I'm in front of, I change my mask like an actor backstage, depending on whatever part of the play I'm in. I think there's an element of this natural. That is human nature. And yet one of the things I think that we get lulled to sleep to is that it is so natural for us at times that we've not realized how absolutely dangerous it is. That Jesus will come at this issue far more strong than he comes at any other issue. Because this one in particular really not only uh, makes us broke before God, but fails to help us realize how greatly we need a savior and how greatly we need his grace. Hypocrisy doesn't allow you to remain and maintain your integrity while every other sin in some way does. Because no other sinner in some regards wants to be something they're not. They realize what they are. And if you're here this morning, I want to ask you, hey, what are your masks? What are the roles that you want to play? How is it that you want to look a different part? And why is that? What is driving that? And has that part, and if it's especially even as you come into a church setting on a Sunday morning, if you're playing the part of the self-righteous, thinking you aren't in need of a Savior, then you may want to re- reevaluate that. Whether you know Jesus Christ or not, you're still in need of his grace. You're still in need of his reconciling work in your life. And you've got to stop playing a part. It's fascinating because this thing is so dangerous because it's going to really threaten two things for the early church. We're going to see God is going to react very strongly because this particular sin threatens two very different things. One is, I think, that is a threat to community. That for those that play the part of the hypocrite, the kind of experience of community that they will be a part of will always be superficial. If you cannot step into a community and show yourself as you are, 
then the very depth and the very nature of the relationships that you are building is one of incredible superficiality. Our hope and our desire in the church here is that you can finally be who you are and you can feel freedom in that to be how, who and how God has made you to be. And therefore, you can find a kind of experience and a kind of community that you cannot find outside of this place. As you have to play a part constantly and sometimes be what you're not. If you cannot feel safe here and you cannot feel known as you are here, then something is definitely wrong. So our hope for you guys, whether it's small groups or whatever context is it in, is that you can feel free to be who you are with whatever inadequacies, whatever weaknesses, whatever issues you have. And you can come before a savior who can cleanse those things, forgive you for those things and begin to change you and transform you to be what he's intended you to be. So I think the first thing that really the the issue of hypocrisy threatens is this concept of community. And really, if you cannot be who you are, then the experience of community that you will have, whether it's in this place or outside this place, will always be superficial because you can never be truly known because you won't let people know you. Second thing I think this issue really attacks is also the very work of God. That really, as external opposition had come at the church, it hadn't really shaken the very work of God, but now a moral compromise will come from within and this will jeopardize the very work of God. That when the church of God becomes morally compromised, the work of God becomes jeopardized. That when those within who make up the church, if they become morally compromised, then the very work of God can become jeopardized. And so God becomes very concerned here in chapter 5. Because external threats did not shake the church, but now an internal threat is going to come that is far graver and far more serious to what he's wanting to accomplish in and through his people. So God is going to react. God is going to act. And the question is, does he overreact? I don't know how you read chapter 5 and you don't think that maybe he overreacts, right? Even for a sin of hypocrisy, right? This guy drops dead on the spot because he lied. How do you swallow that? And how do you deal with that? Does God overreact here in chapter 5? Is he a demented parent? Or is he a parent who at the very least, in a sense, hands out disproportionate punishments for the crimes that have been levied? So I want to first ask, what is the punishment that's merited out here? Ultimately, really, as we look at sin throughout the New Testament, the punishment for sin is always death. It's death here. It's death a lot of places, all right? Um, And frankly, it's death in a lot of different ways, all right? So I want to kind of highlight for you guys very quickly and set a larger context for Acts chapter 5. And so we know, obviously, for here in Acts 5, that the death that's ensued is one that is immediate and physical, all right? But by and large, what is it that sin brings about as we look through our New Testament? Romans chapter 6, verse 23 will speak of the fact that sin brings eternal death. So for uh, Paul will say in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're not going to run through all of these, but he'll say, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that death is, is really contrasted with eternal life. And the concept there is that because we've fallen short of the glory of God, we've all fallen short of that. We've all sinned, and therefore what sin has brought us is eternal separation from God himself. That because of our sin that we all have, we all have been separated from God. And if God does not do something on our behalf, we will spend for all of eternity apart from him. And so really, as we look at Acts chapter five and we think, man, this is a stiff sentence for the crime that's levied. Really, Romans chapter six is a far stiffer sentence, right? If we balk at Acts five, then we sure as heck should be balking at Romans chapter six because it's far deeper and far more serious that sin could separate us from God for all of eternity. So you have Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that gives us a sense of eternal death. I think you have Acts 5 and a few other passages that will speak of the idea of an early or premature physical death. The death may not be just spiritually speaking for all eternity, but death can also be, as we look at our New Testament, a premature physical death, which is what happens here in Acts 5. 
Ananias and Sapphira will sin and God comes and takes their lives prematurely. He ends their lives physically right then and there. They're dead. In fact, you get this idea also in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, where John will speak of a sin that leads to death, and the concept there is physical death. That there's a sin that may take us home early, earlier than God intended physically. Uh, or even in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, we get another narrative example in which God takes some believers home prematurely. In chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, you have a story in which there are some of the early church who are taking the Lord's Supper, and apparently they are taking it inappropriately. And according to the uh, verbiage in 1 Corinthians 11, they fall asleep. Sleep being just a synonym or being an analogy for death. There are some who are taking the Lord's Supper improperly and God takes their lives prematurely, immediately on the spot. I mean, that is, that is a stiff sentence, right? And then you get this concept that's emerging, not just of eternal death, but sometimes premature physical death. And then lastly, and I think most normatively, the idea of qualitative death. All right. James chapter one, verse 15, James will speak of, and if you were in big church last week, you heard uh, Blake speaking of this, but uh, he speaks of temptation that when temptation is born and we give into it, it leads to sin. And when sin, sin is born, it leads to death. That there's a sense in which as you and I fall to temptation, as we choose to walk contrary to God's law, we will experience a death in our lives. One that will be physical later on. One that may be spiritual for all eternity, but even for us who know Jesus Christ, who have a confidence that we will spend all of eternity with Jesus, that even for us, sin brings about a death in our lives right now, qualitatively. It can be a loss of intimacy with Jesus Christ. It can be a loss of peace, of hope, of joy. It can be a loss of a sense of significance and being able to participate in the work of God. That when we fall into sin, it brings about a death. It brings about a separation of us from a lot of good things. So really, as you look throughout the New Testament, the punishment for sin is always death. It's always been death. That's what the Old Testament was trying to highlight for the nation of Israel through the sacrificial system, that their sins cause the death of something. And for the New Testament, really, as we look at the death of Jesus Christ, it's meant to be a portrait and a picture for us in which we realize that our sins led to the crucifixion of the very Son of God. And I think for many who balk at Acts 5, thinking, why did Ananias and Sapphira die? Our culture at large will say, why did Jesus Christ need to die? Right? That if this was too much, then surely the death of the very Son of God, a perfect unblemished lamb, surely that was unnecessary. Right? And really, what does that reveal about our assumptions? I think not so much that maybe God is overreacting or that he's some uh, person bent on vengeance. I think what our assumptions and, and what they reveal is this. Not that God is overreacting, but I think we very often underreact to sin. The fact that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins shows us how deep the problem of sin goes, how weighty was the punishment, and how weighty was the transgression. If Jesus had to die for it, then it was serious. And in fact, it was serious for him, and we're going to see in Acts 5, it's serious as well. Sin is always serious, and it always leads to death. Sometimes, as we look through the New Testament, it leads to a premature physical death, but not normally. All right. And so really, as we kind of pull back, I want us to realize that as we look at this concept of crime and punishment, a punishment that fits the crime, then ultimately, what was the crime? What was so bad? Exactly what was Ananias and Sapphira doing? We've talked about hypocrisy a little bit, but I want you guys to notice verse 9. Notice, actually, let's pick up in verse, uh, pick up with me, if you will, in verse 6, as the story kind of goes on. We'll pick it up, actually, in verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all those who heard it. And the young men got up and they covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in. 
not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. I don't know how you will not be traumatized and absolutely scared out of your mind if you're a witness in that moment. I think even for the young generation that had to carry these, this couple out, I think that young generation learned a lesson about the nature of God's holiness and the nature of his character. I think they realized that you do not take God's holiness for granted. You do not take it casually. In fact, Peter will say uh, uh, to Sapphira in verse 9, why is it that you have agreed to, together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Uh, really, I, I'm going to say that I think the crime was a test of God's holiness. But what was the test? What is it that they were testing? And frankly, what is it that you and I are often testing when we think of our own sin? When we sin, when we fall short of what God has called us to and we transgress his commands, what is it that we are testing? I think at some level that you and I are testing or wondering, does God really even notice? Does God really even care? And then ultimately, I think you and I begin to think more and more as we go further and further, how far can I go before God acts? How far can I step into this? How deep can I go before God does something about it and shows me that he cares, shows me that he notices? How far can I go before he moves and he acts? It's really interesting. I got a perfect illustration for this this summer. We were in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and uh, we had wanted so desperately to see a moose. All right, We were there the previous summer, uh, and uh, we never saw a moose. And so this summer we went, and uh, we went on this one road called Moose Junction Road. We went for, uh, we woke up at 6 a.m. one morning, took off on this road, and took off and wanted to see a moose, never saw the moose. We went on a hike throughout a lake around the uh, Grand Teton National Park, never saw a moose, just absolutely heartache. All right, our little girl Caroline was dying to see this moose. We never saw saw it. We finally get to a place for lunch where we sit down and we order a pizza. Our pizza comes out and would you believe we look out at this mountain place restaurant and there is a moose, right? Right in the middle of semi-civilization. He's just hanging out, right? And he's walking down and we just freak out, all right? So uh, before we know it, Marcy's uh, jumped the embankment of the restaurant, grabbed her camera, is running, and I, in my infinite fatherly wisdom, I grab my two-and-a-half-year-old Caroline, we, we run off towards the moose, all right? And so this is our first picture of the moose, all right? He's just kind of moseying on. We got past the restaurant embankment, and uh, we're up on a hill kind of looking down, take the picture, and you think that would be enough, but it's not, right? So what do we do? We go down the hill towards the moose, right? And so we, we want to get closer. We want to get as, as close as we can, all right? And the moose begins to move, and he moves kind of down the hill from the restaurant towards some cabins, all right? And so really, uh, everyone started to notice the moose. People started to gather. And at this point now, we get 10 yards from the moose, all right? So much so that maybe from the picture, or at least for us, I mean, I could see the dude's eyes. I knew where he was looking, all right? And, and, and no warning bells went off in my head that having my two-year-and-a-half-year-old on my shoulders 10 yards from a moose was a very bad idea, all right? And so we're there, and we're just like kind of blown away, like, oh, my gosh, this is happening. We've seen a moose. Caroline, what do you think? This is awesome. And all of a sudden, the moose lets out a noise, and we know that within seconds, 
He's going to charge somebody and he's going to charge in some direction. All right. And sure enough, I just book it. All right. Marcy books it. We just turn back up the hill and start sprinting for our very lives. All right. I'm thinking this is my daughter. I've just put her in harm's way. I am an idiot. All right. And so we're just booking. All right. And my parents are up in the restaurant looking down on the scene and they see us just sprinting as fast as we can. All right. Up the hill, up the hill. And then they see a moose out of nowhere, just darting, going sideways. All right. Down toward all the other cabins where people were. All right. And it, and it hit us as we got back to the, to the moment with the pizza and his adrenaline was just coursing through our system. Man, that was stupid, right? <laughs> Why did I have to get that close, right? Why did no warning bells go off in my mind and in my heart to think this was not a wise idea, all right? And, and what I didn't tell you was an hour before this, when we saw some bears on the road, we got out again with my two-and-a-half-year-old and I had to have a park ranger tell us, you might want to get back in your car, all right? That didn't alert us, all right? And so here we are an hour later with a moose, 10 yards, and he's charging after us, all right? Nothing, nothing kind of sunk in for us, all right? We kind of had to learn by being idiots, and as other people were going, you know, mooses are mangy and mean. You know that, don't you? And we're like, oh, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I knew that, you know? Which is why I was 10 yards from him, all right? You know? But I thought as I walked away, I don't know if there's a better illustration for our handling and our response to sin at times, all right? It's sometimes we actually think it's kind of beautiful off in the scenery and off in the distance, and we want to just stare at it. We want to take pictures of it even sometimes. And then we get closer and closer and closer, and no warning bells go off in our minds. And I think by and, by and large, I think you and I have to wake up about sin. I want to kind of change the questions that I think are primary in this passage. I want to flip them around. I think really as we jump into Acts 5, I think the dominant tension in the passage, the dominant question we ask is this. Does God overreact here? Is he the demented or the disproportionate father who's just crazy off his rocker? And I think really you and I need to flip the questions around because I think it's not so much does God overreact. I think the question really is why do we always underreact to our own sin? Not why does God overreact to our sin, but I think the question that Acts 5 forces us to ask is, why do we always underreact to our sin? Why do we think we can get 10 yards away from a moose if it were sin, so to speak? Why do we think we won't get hurt? If God says, hey, don't do this. Hey, hey, pursue this and not that. And yet we go in the opposite direction. Do we think we won't get hurt? Why do we think that's no big deal? Or even on another level, if, if God reacts appropriately in Acts 5, then why does he underreact every other time in our lives, <laughs> right? If sin always leads to death, and sometimes it leads to premature physical death, then why doesn't he do that every single time that sin happens, right? Why do we underreact to our sin, and why does God underreact to our sin also every time? I think those are fundamentally different questions coming at the same story, but I think those are the questions we should be asking, because I don't think God overreacts at all. I think we, by and large, underreact every single time. And really what we see is that God is underreacting a lot of times, and in his underreaction, what he's doing for you and I is he's extending to you and I grace. I think it's fascinating as you look at Acts chapter 5, the great question also is, where is the grace of God, right? Where is the grace of God? I think if you look close enough and you look deep enough, you'll begin to realize that the grace of God is all throughout Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5. And here's what I mean. I think the judgment of God does a couple things for us in terms of how we respond to the story, in terms of what we do. It causes you and I to wake up, right? I had to be charged by a moose before I finally woke up and thought, I won't get that close next time, right? 
And I think for us, when it comes to sin, some of us have to get that close. We have to have discipline come upon us for our sins. We have to have the consequences of our sins come upon us before we wake up. And I think in those moments, we think God is judging. God is unkind. He's unmerciful to us. And what I want to tell you guys this morning, in the moments in your lives where you found the discipline of God come at you, thank God for him and his grace that he's done that. It's like a little child who begins to touch the, the, the stove that's hot and, and the, the initial heat is enough to burn him but pull his hand back. Even in that moment of judgment on his hand, it is grace. Because if it did not pull him back, he would have gone further and further and the pain and the damage would have been that much more intense. One of the first things I want you guys to realize this morning as we kind of wrap up and move through the story is that even the judgment and the discipline of God, when it comes, even in our lives, it is by his grace that it comes to cause you to wake up and to realize how absolutely dangerous this thing is and that you shouldn't be just playing with it. In fact, uh, it's not just that I think we need to wake up, but I think we need to run away. If you were uh, in main church last week as Blake walked through James chapter one, it's really interesting. He quoted at one point from first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And I thought it was incredibly appropriate for us as well. In first Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, Paul says this, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will always provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. It's fascinating as you think about temptation, as you think about your own battle with sin, how is it that God extends you grace in the midst of temptation? Does he extend you the strength to endure that temptation and to hang in there and just to play with it and not get burned? No. The grace that God extends to you in the midst of temptation and a struggle with sin is not strength to handle it. It is always a door to run as far away as possible. Do you guys notice that? What is the grace that he provides? It's a way of escape. He'll never provide you more than you can handle. And in it, he'll always provide you a way out. And so your ability to resist temptation, your ability to walk in victory and in purity is not based on the strength he provides you to resist temptation. It's based on your ability to identify the door of escape to get out of there. I think for some of us, we think it's not that dangerous. And even when we realize it's that dangerous, we begin to think, oh, I can manage this. <laughs> I can control this. It's not going to get out of control. I can kind of like a little hobby or a little pet. I'll just kind of nurture, feed from time to time, but it'll stay in its cage, <laughs> right? But sin never does it that. It continues to grow, it continues to grow, and it continues to grow so that we cannot handle it. And the way of escape from it is not trying to manage it and trying to overpower it. The way of escape is always to get the heck out of Dodge and to run as far away as possible. The grace that extends to you and I is to realize that in his discipline, we're to wake up. The grace that extends to you and I in the midst of temptation is to realize he's provided the way of escape from it by a door that's open for you to get the heck out of Dodge. And lastly, from the times that we've not gotten the heck out of Dodge, the times that we woke up a little too late, the other grace that I think he provides us is one of confession. And I'm going to end here this morning. And I think the last thing I think that we do as we think about our rehandling of sin and our response to sin is this concept of, of confession. A confession is yet another kind of grace that we have that's been extended to you and I. John will say it like this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ, let me say to you that the greatest grace that's been extended to you is the fact that you are still alive. You, like all of us, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet God has preserved your life. He's not acted to end your physical life. He's provided you an opportunity to respond to him and to his grace.
His holding back of his judgment is grace that he's extended to you, giving you an opportunity maybe today for the first time to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal savior. That it was Jesus who died in your place. It was his death that that God put upon uh, and for your sins. It was by his death that you have forgiveness and you have eternal life and you have an opportunity to be reconciled to him. And if you're here this morning and you do know Jesus Christ, let me say the grace that I think that's extended to you is also one of confession. All of us have fallen short. We still fall short, right? That after coming to know Jesus Christ, the, the end goal is not perfection. None of us will arrive there. That we all, in a sense, are wearing masks. We are all, in a sense, striving to be what God has called us to be, but we still continue to come up short and struggle day in and day out. And from the moments and the places that we've struggled and the places that we are presenting something other than we are, whether it's a Tuesday night, a Wednesday night, a Friday night, where you end up being and choosing and doing things that are contrary to who you want to be or contrary to what you want to present in other settings, God says, hey, I want you just as you are. You don't have to put on a cover for me because I see you just as you are. And in fact, I gave my only son, Jesus Christ, so that I could see you through his blood and that you could always find a place of security to approach my throne with boldness and with confidence because you could be just as you are in front of me. And if you know Jesus Christ this morning, let me just say, hey, stop fooling around and realize that, hey, you can come to him just as you are. That it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you're doing right now, that you can come and approach him for confession and his grace will always cover over your sin no matter where it's been and no matter how long it's been going on. Don't pull back from the extension of grace that he's offered you as he offers you confession. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to end with a few songs that would give you guys an extended time just to come before the Lord. I want to challenge you guys as we kind of respond back in worship. I want you guys to meditate really. I think as you look at Acts 5 and you realize the very nature of God's holiness, that he is holy, that he's righteous, and that he's just. But even in his righteousness and his holiness, we also see that he's merciful and that he's gracious and that he's gentle and that he's patient. And as we respond to worship, I want you to consider those threads that I think weave through the story, that will weave through the songs we sing and wrestling with, hey, who is God? Who do I want him to be and who is he actually? And then lastly, kind of coming before him and letting him have the opportunity to kind of come directly to you and say, hey, this arena of your life, you continue to hold it from me, but I want this one. I want my, your faith in me to extend to every arena of your life and stop playing a game and stop hiding in different arenas. I want all of your life. I've given you all of mine and I want you to walk with me and find a kind of freedom and joy as you hand me the entirety of your life. So Tyler and them are going to lead us in worship and then we'll close a little bit later in prayer. But I want you guys just to have a time before the Lord.